Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hey there, my name is Ricky Smith, and I'm the founder of Random Acts of Kindness Everywhere, a nonprofit that simply does exactly what it says. Promote kindness everywhere. We know the world is crazy right now. If you are searching for a podcast that has a deeper conversation about race, my co-host Angel Gray and I will be discussing everything going on right now on our podcast, Random Acts of Podcast, on Blue Wire Podcast Network. To find out more, go to rakenow.org. Enjoy the show. Blue Wire. It's exciting to win money. Back out to Allen. History final. Is there anything you don't gamble on? Uh, not really. Gambling gods, fickle bunch. Oh yeah, so easily offended. Gambling's not your problem. You're just an idiot. Welcome to the Full Slate Sunday Scaries podcast brought to you by betonline.ag. I'm your co-host Cody Dark, joined by my brother out in Chicago, Tyler Dark. Tyler, we finally have sports back. Yes, the NBA has approved the, you know, return to play starting July 31st. So the last few months have been obviously a lot of negativity. The last couple of weeks have been uh, pretty sad as well. So finally got some positive news in the world, I think. Yes, uh, that was that was a big win for us uh, and, and all the sports fans out there. We kind of had these intermittent golf matches. We've had UFC, but uh, the NBA is kind of the first major domino before big sports to announce for sure that they're coming back. We get this kind of interesting format. What do you think about the essentially the A seed? We could have a playing game if the nine seed is within four games of the AC. What do you think about that? I, th- I think it's awesome. It's just like a added element to make it exciting. Obviously, the eight seed, you know, usually never has any chance. So just to add some added excitement to that is fun. Like I saw the Suns uh, put out on Twitter like a video that they're ten thousand to one to win the title right now, and it's like so you're telling us there's a chance, and it's a great hype video. So <laughs> just having that back is fun, and I think like I wouldn't say like I wouldn't put an asterisk on the season, but it's obviously different. So adding a different element to it, I think is fine. Um, but yeah, I mean, like I'm, I'm really excited for it. Yeah. I think, I think the NBA kind of knew they had the chance to maybe get Zion in the mix. So this, this allows that. Um, so good, good news for all of us. Um, and, and we actually get PGA back this Thursday, Tyler. So some more, some more real sports in the hopper. Slowly making our return. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm hoping that the Pelicans don't end up making the playoffs just because that would be a tougher matchup for the Lakers. I mean, I was talking to my friends last night. It's going to be crazy, obviously, with the coronavirus stuff still going on, and they're going to be in this bubble, but 
what happens in a scenario where if it's say it's like Lakers Clippers conference finals and Anthony Davis tested positive for coronavirus yeah. he's gonna have to miss like a few games like um it's gonna be crazy but I'm just thinking of the positives that we'll have it back and it's gonna be kind of like March Madness I think where at least during the regular season they're gonna have these games going on throughout the day so mm-hmm. at least while we're stuck inside we have games all day and obviously betters have you know, a lot of action to get on. So it, it's going to be awesome. I think moving it to the summer is going to be something we see uh, moving forward from the NBA. Yeah, I agree. I think the whole futures market is kind of just like total chaos because of what you said. If if one of these major guys, if Giannis, say, for instance, gets coronavirus in the Eastern Conference Finals and misses two to three games, like what? Is that it? Is that the Buck season? So we'll see what happens there. But we had an awesome interview today. We had Jeff Perlman on, New York Times bestseller. He's wrote a number of books, um, and he was really generous with this time. He spoke to us for about 45 minutes about his start in the business. He worked for Sports Illustrated. He's written books about the Showtime Lakers, the Cowboys, the the Mets 86 team, Walter Payton, uh, most recently the USFL, uh, which is interesting to speak to him about that, a little bit about baseball coming back, and also uh, he has a book coming out about the Lakers, uh, the Kobe Shaq Lakers. Um, So great conversation with him. There is no shortage of action going on at our exclusive partner, Bet Online. NASCAR is back, and Bet Online has hundreds of other games, events, and sports to get in on. You can still bet on simulated NFL, NBA, and UFC events 24-7. Or you can participate in a $10,000 Madden Bracket Challenge, a March Madness-style NFL simulation tournament you can enter for free. And coming up next Sunday, Bet Online has ex-Chicago Bulls, Horace Grant, Bill Cartwright, and Craig Hodges joining them to discuss the Michael Jordan documentary on what they're calling After the Dance. Visit betonline.ag and use promo code BLUEWIRE to receive your new welcome bonus and check out all the action. BetOnline, your online wagering solution. Okay, and Tyler and I are very excited to welcome on Full Slate, Jeff Perlman, New York Times bestselling author. Jeff, thanks for joining us. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm good, actually. Thanks for asking. Good, good. So You've written seven books at this point, um, a couple of New York Times bestsellers. Could you give us a little background on yourself and how did you end up getting into writing? So this is one of those things where you're gonna, I'm going to end up sounding like an asshole, but I've actually written nine books, but that sounds like really douchey, but just uh, oh, sorry. I have written nine books. Yeah, no, no, no. That sounds dumb. Amazon, not- Amazon has it wrong. Do they say I've written seven? I think so. Amazon and Wikipedia. You know what? I wrote two. I wrote a really bad Roger Clemens book, so maybe they're just not counting that one. That is possible. You know? Okay, or yeah. maybe maybe your Wikipedia is wrong. Let me. Uh, yeah, your the second sentence of your Wikipedia. He has written three books about baseball, three about football, and one on basketball. Ah, there you go. That's okay. The shortchanging. Uh, yeah. Uh, I um. What was your question? How did I get into this? Yeah. 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 I um. I am a product of the mean streets of Mayo Pack, New York, which is suburban New York, and um, about an hour upstate in New York City. And I, uh, it sounds corny, but it's actually true. I started, this all started because I decided to become the sports editor of my high school newspaper, the Mayo Pack High School Chieftain, back in, way back in the dark ages. And I was never a great athlete. I ran a year of college track, not very well, but I was a pretty crappy athlete, but I loved writing. And I went to University of Delaware and got, you know, deep into the newspaper. And um, my dream in life, my, my, true dream from the time I was maybe young high school was to write for Sports Illustrated. Uh, I grew up when SI was like the king of all sports media and all I wanted to do was write for Sports Illustrated. And I started my career as a, as a food and fashion writer at the Nashville, Tennessee. And that was my first job out of college. And all I wanted to do was write for Sports Illustrated. So I would apply and apply and apply and apply. And finally in 1996, I, uh, I got hired as a reporter at SI, which means you're just a fact checker. And I spent a good amount of time sitting in the office fact checking other people's work but just busting my ass and pitching stories and pitching stories and kind of worked my way up and became a baseball writer at SI and that was a good good amount of years ago and I've since written apparently seven books but maybe nine and uh <laughs> and I uh I, I it's just uh it's been a dream it's the best it's the best gig how it comes with its struggles, but it's it's been a joyride of covering sports and being able to write for a living and never wearing shoes and you know just really <laughs> being around for my kids to raise my kids. It's just 
it's been pretty great. So as you as you clarified and Wikipedia has wrong, you've written nine books. So what's kind of your process for going into each book where you pick the topic and then getting to the end where you publish it? Could you talk about that in between where you interview everyone, you piece together the book? Could you kind of walk us through that? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I feel like I live that all the time. And it's uh, it's like pleasure pain. All right, this is what I always say. When I was in college, I had a girlfriend. And she once gave me, this is a true story, I swear. She once gave me, I was sick. And she gave me this really good back scratch. And she had very sharp nails, right? And it was the best and worst back scratch I've ever had. Because at the end of the back scratch, my back was bloody because her nails were so sharp. Right? I swear to God, and it was, she actually took a picture of my back and it was bloody. <laughs> And it was the best back scratch and the worst back scratch I've ever had. And that's basically what writing a book is. It's super highs and super lows and joyful moments and painful moments. And for me, like my, you alluded to it before you started recording. My next book is this book about the Shaq Kobe Lakers. And it'll be about two years. And the first thing I do, the very first thing I do when I work on a book is I go on eBay and I order every media guide I can find from that time period. So this, you know, it was covered in 96 to 04 Lakers. So every media guide. And then I make a file for every single person in all those media guides. And I start tracking them down. And at the same time, I'm building up a library of articles that would usually be at the bare minimum 7,000 pages of just articles, uh, articles. And I print them out because I have to go through them with a, oh with a highlighter because I'm old school in that way. And then you're tracking them down one by one. You're tracking them down. Hey, can, are you willing to talk? Hey, are you willing to talk? It's a lot of rejection. It's some acceptance. And and basically, after if I have two years to write a book, I'll take a year and a half and just report. I'll do no writing. I would just report. And it's just a matter of calling and collecting and digging and finding. Um, and hopefully, by the time I'm ready to write, I have a library of a million articles and I have 500, 600 interviews done. And I just sit down and try to somehow organize it and put my thoughts together and write it. And then I write it and then I hate everything I've written and think it sucks and this is going to be the worst <laughs> ever. That's a definite part of the process. And my wife says, you say this every time. And I say, but this time it really sucks. <laughs> and then someone will tell me they like it. And I'll say, all right, maybe it's good. And, uh, and that's it. It's, it's, it's a lot of joy. It's a lot of joy. And it's a lot of nightmare mixed into one. Does it get easier, like book to book, as as you kind of go on, you're shaking your head vehemently? Yeah. People on the it's podcast won't be able to see it. Yeah. It's kind of like... Um, I think it's kind of like, uh, this might be a crude example, but it's it's a little bit like if you're a major league hitter and maybe as a rookie, you hit 270 and the next year you need to hit higher than 270, right? You need to hit 290. You want to hit 290 and you want to earn that next contract. And then well, I hit 290. So now I want to increase my power number. So I'm going to, I'm going to start, you know, using a heavier bat and I'm going to go for power, blah, blah, blah. Like, I think with anything in life, this isn't, I'm not comparing myself to a baseball player. I actually think it's anything in life. Like you achieve some, any level of success and you actually want to build on that success and you want to do better and you want to make your books better and you want to make them richer for yourself as much as anything. So if anything, you just have a higher expectation for yourself. Um, when I wrote my first book about the 86 Mets, I didn't have any expectations. I didn't know what it would do. I didn't know if it would sell. I, I didn't even know what it meant to really succeed as, as an author. Um, and then that book made the bestseller list. And in a lot of ways, that was one of that was one of the most joyful moments in my life, finding out your book was on the New York Times list. But it also sets yourself up to a certain level of expectations. And my next book didn't make the New York Times bestseller list. And that was crushing. And it never would have been crushing if I hadn't made my first book and made mm -hmm. the list. So that mm -hmm. just build up these expectations, even if it's it's ridiculous. You know, you just kind of do. So it never gets easier. It really does not. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. Has there been a book you one of the books you've written or a story from a book, particular book that you received a lot of backlash from? Oh, I wrote a book. So I wrote a book um, called, I was looking for it here, called Sweetness about uh, Walter Payton, yep. who obviously mm -hmm. the legendary Chicago Bear running back. And um, the book uh, was, was just, it was, I've never worked harder on a book and it's probably, it's probably the best book I've written as far as just, he really had a fascinating life and I interviewed almost 700 people and it was, it was birth to death. And I had been, I had interviewed him a couple months before he died. So I really felt a connection to this book. And one of the things about writing a biography is, um, you know, if you want to do this well, it's not always pretty, you know, like I'm not writing just a, I'm not giving, you know, 
hand jobs to these guys. It's like true <laughs> tellings of their lives. And it just mm-hmm. is, you know, it's a true telling. And right. Walter Payton was great. And he was a great guy and he was awesome. But he also he had his shortcomings. You know, he wasn't a great husband. He wasn't a great father. Um, he suffered through a lot of depression toward the end of his life. So I wrote this book and Sports Illustrated ran an excerpt on the cover of the magazine. And the excerpt came out about three weeks before the book came out. And the excerpt was all about his depression, the end of his life, his depression, his infidelities, suicidal thoughts. And nobody had the book yet. So the excerpt comes out and people just go ape shit about um, how dare, who is this guy to come along and stomp all over Walter Payton? And I just felt like screaming, no, you don't understand. You have to read the whole book. Mm-hmm. But people didn't have the whole book to read. So like there was a radio station that did a book burning um, Mike Ditka, who had been the coach of the Bears at the time, said he would spit on me if he saw me. It just got really, really ugly. And it was very painful. And I felt I received some redemption when the book came out. And people were like, oh, actually, this is a fair book. But it, that three-week window was really, really uh, spiriting for me. I'm sure. I'm sure, especially when you put that much effort into it. And that that's a piece that goes out. So you've, you've read, I mean, you have the uh, book about the Showtime Lakers, the Cowboys. You mentioned it, the Mets, the 86 Mets was kind of your first book, a book on the USFL, Walter Payton, Brett Favre, Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, kind of across the board. How do you choose your next book subject? Because it seems like it's kind of a balance between greatness and some kind of controversy in a lot of these areas. Yeah, that was well said, actually. I am. Um... I kind of have three criteria. So um, number one, it has to be a subject that is going to hold my interest for two years. Um, You put a lot, these books, you live these lives for two years. So I did though, you mentioned Roger Clemens. That's the one book that if I could do it all over again, I probably wouldn't do that book because I just didn't find him that interesting for two years. And it's a lot of time to spend with the subject and be sort of bored by the subject. Um, So number one has to be interesting. Number two, it, I don't want it to have already been done really well. Like if there's a definitive, if there had been a definitive Walter Payton biography, I wouldn't have written one too. Cause what's why, why, what's mm-hmm. the point? Right. And then, um, number three is it has to at least have a shot of selling. Like it has to have a shot. The only book I've written that you can make the argue argument wasn't a really big subject was my USFL book. Uh, a lot of people your age, I don't even know if you guys have ever heard of the USFL before. Right. And that's totally no, fair. No, right, not right, right. until before right. prepping like loosely before yeah, right, right. for this. Yeah. And that's um so that was the only generally just because this is how I eat and this is how I raise my kids and you know, blah blah blah. So it has to be every subject I've written about, you know, from Clemens, which didn't sell great, and Bonds, those are my two worst selling books. But they still had a shot. They were still big subjects, big names, big cities, big markets. So I do generally try to at least have subjects that um, you know, have a chance. There's no guarantee about selling, but that they have a chance. So you talk about Roger Clemens and you wrote the Barry Bonds book as well. And you're, you worked at SI as a baseball writer. For those two guys specifically after profiling them, do you believe they should be in the Hall of Fame given the steroid controversy that surrounded them? Yeah, I don't. Um, and I always think of it this way. I have two ways of looking at that. I actually love that question because it's a really interesting one. Um, number one, it's like this. People say the argument people make for both of them is – well, they would have gotten in anyway. Like even if they didn't use, they would have gotten in. And I always, I always think about it. I would hear, I was working on these books when my kids were in elementary school. So I think about my daughter, Casey, and let's say like three quarters of the year, she's getting an A in math. Right. And then she, it turns out she cheats on all her exams the last quarter of the year. Like she should fail math. Like you should actually fail math. Like she, you should not reward someone for cheating. A teacher's not going to say, well, you did okay three quarters a year. You did great. But that last quarter, you cheated. Like, there, where's the honor and the integrity in that? And I think about the way I try raising my kids, and I, I just think integrity matters. And I know people say, well, people are getting in who have cheated, and people are, well, that sucks. Like, it's an imperfect world, and that sucks. And the other thing is, I had a really, really, I have a really good friend. Uh, his name is Sal Fasano, and he was a catcher in the major leagues for about 15 years. Mm-hmm. And so I was a journeyman catcher. He probably caught for eight different teams. He was a generally borderline major leaguer and he busted his ass. And he's one of these guys I know really well. Uh, He never used PEDs. I believe him firmly. We've talked about it at length off the record, on the record. And um, toward the end of his career, Sal was hanging on 
because he had a son who had a heart condition. And the only reason he was hanging on was because he wanted to make the major league, stay in the major leagues, to get the health insurance, the best health insurance for his son. And when the Mitchell report, which was a steroid report about 15 years ago, came out, mm-hmm. there were like 10 fringe journeyman catchers, just like Sal Fasano, identified as PD users. And I always think like, here's a guy who decided to do it the right way. And he's, he's only doing it so his kid can get health insurance. And 10 assholes decide they're going to cheat. And those 10 guys are basically cheating this guy who's trying to do it with integrity and honor um, out of something important. And it just, I just think integrity matters. And I understand the other argument. You guys can make the other argument and I, I will understand it fully. For me personally, I have a hard time rewarding people with the greatest reward you can give in sports when they decided to cheat. I think those are two two really good points and stories that like you so Tyler and I's background we're both big uh diehard San Francisco Giants fans so growing up (laughs) Bonds Bonds was our guy so this is right and like I mean definitely didn't do himself any any favors during his playing career in terms of interactions with the media anything like that what do you think I I think his greatness was at the point where he should be in Clemens should be in a lot of these guys should be in but there should be a wing for say steroid era or was accused of doing steroids. What do you think about that? I don't have a problem with that. I will tell you what's interesting about bonds. So bonds is, um, it's funny. I have a Holy Trinity of assholes I dealt with, right? One was, you guys may not even know this guy. I wrote the story about John Rocker, who was this racist baseball player. With the yeah, I wanted to ask about that. Okay. He's on the list. Will Clark, former giant first baseman, a little before your time is on the list. He was just a racist asshole. And, but number one is bonds. And the thing about Bonds is, forget the steroids for a minute, right? Forget PEDs. He, I've never seen a guy, he reminds me of Trump. Hopefully you guys aren't like huge Trump. Like he reminds me of Trump in that he goes out of his way to make you unhappy. Like I've never seen a guy go out of, actually work to make you unhappy. If you do like Trump, that's really cool. I just want to say, but like, yeah. No. yeah. <laughs> um, like I've never seen a guy who from, the equipment guys, to the PR guys, to the media, to even fans. Like, he just worked at it. Like, he wanted you unhappy. And there was a really good story about him um, by Andrew Bagley in The Athletic a couple weeks ago, or months ago now, mm-hmm. about how he feels like a pariah in baseball and how nobody wants him around and he's really sad. And I actually felt bad for him to a certain degree. But it's kind of like you reap what you sow, man. The chickens come home to roost. You know, like, you treated people like shit for so many years and now nobody wants you around. That's your punishment. Did you get to meet him for your book? Yeah, um, yeah. I, so Bonds, I've dealt with a lot. And he, all right, true story. So Bonds wouldn't talk for the book, right? But, so he hated Sports Illustrated because in the early 90s, SI did a story and he was on the cover. And I think the cover headline was, I'm Barry Bonds and you're not, right? <laughs> and there's just a story about him being a dick. And um, is, is like cursing okay in this podcast? Yeah, you're fine. Go for it. Yeah. So uh, I do have a bad mouth here. So um, I had a mutual friend with Bonds and I was writing at Sports Illustrated and my mutual friend hooked up an interview with Bonds. This is before, this is just for a magazine story. So I flew out to San Francisco and Bonds did what he did to everyone. He blew me off for a day, blew me off for a day, then talked to me and he was great. He was great. So then I'm working on the book and I flew out to San Francisco because the Giants were awesome. The Giants organization was fantastic to deal with always. I mean, Kent and Bonds were disasters, but otherwise they were great. <laughs> and, uh, Kent was just as bad as Bonds. I mean, you know, they're like, like, just not it, as good. Yeah, but very good though. Like really yeah, good. I mean, there's good. started, yeah. like, he was addicted. And um, so I flew out to San Francisco because I wanted to at least ask Bonds in person whether he would talk. And I said to Bonds, I was like, hey, Barry, you know, my name's Jeff Perlman. I'm working on this book. And I just, and he was very nice. He's like, yeah, man, I'm not going to talk, but I appreciate you coming up to me. I was like, okay. And I said, all right. I said, well, just so you know, I talked to, I said two things to him. I said, I talked to Jose Rodiles, who was his teammate at Arizona State. And I said, and I talked to your Cub Scout den mother. Just trying to like say, look, man, I'm just, you know, I'm doing my work here. He said, I was never, man, he goes, I was never in the Cub Scouts, right? He said, I was never in the Cub Scouts. I literally had pictures of Barry Bonds in his Cub Scout uniform. (laughs) And then the craziest thing is he goes, I don't even know who Jose Rodiles is. He goes, I don't even know who that is. Jose Rodiles was his teammate at Arizona State, right? 
So I called Jose Rodriguez back and I was like, Jose, listen, this is kind of weird, but Bond says he doesn't know who you are. And Rosales goes, doesn't know who I am. The guy was in my fucking wedding. And like, <laughs> oh, that was just Bond. Like he mm-hmm. just did these things because he could do these things. And the thing is when you act like that and then you no longer have the power, like he no longer has the power. Now he's just a guy. Yeah. yeah. Nobody wants you around. Wow. Yeah, Jeff, you're really you're really shattering Cody and I's uh, fantasy of Bond. You can love him as a ball player, but he's yeah, just yeah, like he's he's, he's still guy. he's still the greatest hitter we've ever seen. That's totally huge. Yeah. I've never. I would say this. Let's if you take steroids out of the PDs out of the equation, right? Yeah. It was ridiculous. Like watching him hit was ridiculous. I mean, Diamondbacks walked him with the bases loaded intentionally. I mean, that says a lot. He he had the. It's it's really unfortunate he decided to use because he was a ridiculously talented player. And I would say, like, if he hadn't used, he still probably goes down as a Griffey-type guy. You know, like, he still goes down as a great, great player. And if you watch him with Pittsburgh, he did a lot of things in Pittsburgh he never did in San Francisco. He was fast. He was a great outfielder. Um, He was a ridiculously talented player. He just sort of turned to the dark side. Mm -hmm. I I think you hit the nail on the head if you treat people like that all these years and then when you need something from them they're not going to reciprocate that moving up to baseball now given everything going on with coronavirus the sports shutdown are you confident that the MLB will have a season this year and if they don't how damaging would that be because I think if the NBA continues this schedule where they start the season later they go through the summer I think that's going to have a huge impact on baseball and really lower its popularity as it's already been declining in the last few years. Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting thing. So I was, I was in college when um, the 94 strike happened and that was crushing, you know, crippling the, the world series being canceled. This wouldn't quite be that because you wouldn't be blaming the players and the owners. You'd be blaming a circumstance. that's a little beyond their control. It's really weird right now. Right. I, I mean, out here in Southern California, people are really beginning to act like there is no such thing as a coronavirus and stores are starting to be crowded. People are starting to eat in restaurants, blah, 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 blah. And you could, you could see a world where they decide, all right, we're going to have major league baseball games, but instead of 50,000 seat stadium, we're going to allow 5,000 in and you have to sit every X, you know what I mean? Like something like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I agree with you. I think if the NBA comes back, it'll be hard for Major League Baseball not to come back. And I do agree with you, too, that Major League Baseball is in a really precarious spot right now where it used to be when I was a kid kid, like a little kid, baseball was the king. And the most famous athlete in America was Reggie Jackson of the Yankees. Nowadays, if you took Mike Trout, the best player in baseball by far, and had him walk down Fifth Avenue in New York City, maybe five out of 100 people know who he is. You know, that's insane. That, that is insane. My mom has never heard of Mike Trout. My dad has never heard of Mike Trout. You know, like, and they, it's insane what's happened. So I actually agree with you. I don't, I don't know. I mean, baseball will survive, but it's really, I just don't see kids talking about it. I don't see people talking about it. There's no buzz about it. Um, yeah, it's a grim scene. Right. I think that's what's so disappointing about the current status of the conversations is baseball. It seems like they had this opportunity to come in and steal the first three or four weeks of July and have a captive audience that's craving live sports. And at this point, that's probably out the window. If they do, if they actually do figure out a way to do this 50 game season that's being tossed around. I personally am very excited for that. Like that sounds fun. That every baseball game is three times as uh, meaningful as previously. So you you would be on board for that? Yeah, if it's safe, as long as it's done safely, yeah. I would. I um, mm-hmm. you know what? Like, I, so I talked to my kid. My son is a, is uh, thirteen, and he's a huge jersey kid. Like he wears a ton of jerseys. And lately, I've been buying a lot of throwback, cheap throwback jerseys. And we talk a lot about sports history. What I really want to see baseball get back to, and I I might be the only person saying this. Mm-hmm. is the stolen base. Like, we watched tons of clips of Ricky Henderson and Tim Raines and Vince Coleman back in these. The game was so preposterously exciting. It really was. It was so exciting. And nobody runs anymore, ever. And no. it, I just think, like, I don't know how to spur it on because I know, according to the data and statistically, it's yeah. blah, 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 blah. But, like, I don't know, but it just was so fun. It was so freaking fun to watch. Mm-hmm. And it just, I don't, I, it's just, 
I feel like baseball, along with everything going on right now and the way they're handling the pandemic, like the product is hard. How old are you guys? 24. 28. All right. So like your generation, generation younger, like my son grows up and this is his life, right? This is his life, his phone, right? Yeah. And you're not, people think baseball is competing with the NBA and the NFL. It's sports aren't competing with each other. They're competing with phones. Like, what would I rather do, sit and do this or go to a game and watch a game? And baseball is not giving kids enough of a spark to encourage them to do go to a game instead. And they have to figure that out some way. Yeah. Their, I, their, their social media policy is terrible. There's like terrible. no real presence or brand. NBA guys are all over Instagram everywhere. Um, and I just think the engagement there is so much higher. Like you said, nobody like diehard baseball fans know Mike Trout is. Casual baseball fans know Mike Trout is. But people, he's not recognizable, which is insane. He's one of the best baseball players we've seen. And we live, so we live about 20 minutes from Angel Stadium. And we all, my son and I, we go to about nine games a year, right? And we just buy six bucks off of StubHub and you sit there and you have a soda and a hot dog and whatever. And it's, it's great. It's quiet, chill time where we just relax and we'll jump to different seats. And we always talk about like, what can baseball do? Because here, here are the Angels and they have the best player in baseball. They have Otani, you could make an argument, is top 10, at least exciting-wise. Pujols obviously faded, but they get Rendon. I mean, they're, they should be a ticket. You know, they should be something. Yeah. And the games are just, they're so quiet and they're so still. And I just don't think that's translating to my kid. And we always say, like, it would be great if they could find a way to engage more. Like, if you could listen to the third base coach on your phone. Like, every there's an in-stadium app. And you can listen to the third base coach some way, you know, and you just have a no cheating policy that's very strictly enforced. I don't know. You know, you just have to figure out a way to make it more interactive. Yeah. Even, you know, Cody and I, I would say we're for our age group, we're in the minority that we are still diehard baseball fans. And even growing up, I, I still think baseball, in my mind, was kind of the biggest sport. I mean, you had the NFL, but I feel like it was bigger than the NBA, like Yankees, Red Sox. That was so huge. And it just seems like the NBA has passed it by. They're so much more creative. And obviously, you have to take the safety aspect into account with bringing it back. But my frustration with it is it just doesn't seem like there's a lot of leadership on all sides of the MLB trying to get their plan back together. You see the NBA, like the players got together. They said they wanted to come back. Adam Silver has been very open to listening to all these different ideas. Like, I just don't think the MLB has that. And I think you brought up a good point, Jeff, with the interactiveness. I'm not going to take credit for this idea. I heard Gary V say this a few years ago about having the ability for fans to, like, if you're not going to the game, to be able to watch batting practice online. And if you guess a certain amount of home runs a guy hits, you get like a free ticket to a game or something like that. Just getting more people involved, getting younger people involved. Cause like you said, they're battling the phones. They're not battling other sports, especially in the summer. I also, it's interesting. Like if you think about it, who is a player in baseball? Like, all right. So the NBA has about 10 different guys who we know, like we all know LeBron, you know, we all know LeBron, you know, and, and, I mean, we all know, like, you know, even like little things like Damian Lillard and Shaq having these hip hop battles online, right? Like little stuff like that, that seems kind of petty and pathetic. It's insanely good marketing, you know? Mm -hmm. And like the NFL has this crazy free agency period. And all of a sudden Tom Brady's going to Tampa and Gronk is coming out of retirement. Like all these things, like who is the character in baseball? Who is like when I was covering baseball at Sports Illustrated, Jason Giambi was this larger than life character. And yeah, he was roided up and yeah, blah, blah, blah. But like, he was like, he was tats and he was hair dangling over his eyes and he was a badass motherfucker. You know, like he had, who is that guy in baseball now? Like who's Alex Bregman? Like who's. And they were, and they were quieted because of the whole thing. You mentioned yeah. LeBron. LeBron's son has, his son has over a million followers on Instagram. He's more famous than Mike Trout. LeBron James' son, you can make the argument, is more famous than Mike Trout. Yeah, that's actually a great point. I'm curious. I'm looking this up right now, how many followers Mike Trout Because, like, it's just – Bregman is trying to become the face. He is. Um, I, but, obviously, the whole thing with the Asher scandal kind of puts a damper on any any progress he was making there. But, I don't know. Hopefully, hopefully they can get it together. I think a 50-game season actually could be – 
the best thing for their product because most people tune out a couple months of the season like okay september october here we go the playoff push um but i want to talk jeff about your most recent book the usfl i'm curious like you had all these different books that you wrote um and you mentioned your process finding someone you could get um interested in for two years and not get bored of it how did how did what was your inspiration for the usfl book um uh just because i think it's it's interesting timing right giving everything that's going on with the XFL going bankrupt. We had the AAF try and make the attempt. So if you could uh, give us a little insight there. Yeah. So the USFL, when I was a kid, I grew, I was born in 72. USFL came along in uh, 83 and it was a spring football league to rival the NFL. And I remember, so I'm, I'm huge about nostalgia. It sounds like you guys are too. Like to me, a big part of sports is like the nostalgia. You were 12 years old and you remember this, or you had this feeling you saw Bonds hit a home run and you felt this. And then you you read about it now and you still feel it or you watch a video and you still feel it. And when I was um, a kid, I was in the uh, my local library in Mayopac, New York. I, we, we didn't get Sports Illustrated because it was too expensive. But my, I would go to the local library and read SI. And on the cover of Sports Illustrated was a guy named Herschel Walker, who was a running back from the University of Georgia. And he was in a New Jersey General's uniform. And the headline was Hitting Pay Dirt. And I opened up the magazine. And inside is this big article about this new football league, the USFL. And had all these the different helmets from the first season. And it was like the Denver Gold and the Michigan Panthers and the New Jersey Generals and the Philadelphia Stars. And they were different colors. And they were like trying to steal players from the NFL. And they were signing all these college hotshots like Herschel Walker. And my, my little 12-year-old head, I was 11 actually when I came out, it just went poosh. Like I was just blown away. I truly was blown away. And I love the USFL. Like, I just loved it. I loved everything about it. I love that it wasn't the NFL. I love that they had cool uniforms. I love that they were trying to steal players. I love that the whole idea of, like, challenging the big guy. So for years and years, all I wanted to do was write a USFL book. It had been my dream book for a gazillion years. And my agent at one point said to me, because I kept saying USFL book. And he's like, Jeff, he literally said, Jeff, nobody wants a fucking USFL book. (laughs) So maybe five years ago, I, I decided I was going to write a Brett Favre biography. And what I did was I wrote two proposals. I wrote a Favre proposal and I wrote the USFL proposal. And I went to publishers and I said, I pitched a Favre book and a publisher, Houghton Mifflin, Houghton Mifflin uh, bid on the Favre book. And there were a couple of places a bid. And I went back to Houghton Mifflin and I said, I would do the Favre book for less money if you let me do the USFL. So I got crap money for the USFL, less money I would have gotten for Favre. But I desperately wanted to do it. And the interesting thing about it is the guy who ruined, and this is pure timing coincidence. The guy who ruined the USFL was the owner of the New Jersey generals, Donald Trump. He ruined the league. Mm-hmm. And there were so many parallels between Trump as a USF owner and Trump as a presidential candidate. So everyone just thought I was doing this as like this Trump book and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, no, I don't even, it's just pure coincidence, but it was just this dream book. And I just, I've never worked harder on a book. I only had one year to write it because the money was terrible. And um, it was my favorite experience of any of the books I've written. Go ahead. Go ahead. Thank you. <laughs> it's, a, it's a crazy story. And you mentioned in the book, and I heard you talking on Rich Eisen's show um, and a couple other places, that the USFL was soon the NFL, uh, led by Trump, as you mentioned, that they were putting a monopoly on the fall TV schedule, which the NFL was doing, and they were worried about the USFL. So it seemed like they had the NFL on the ropes. Why do you think any of these other leagues that have popped up, as Cody's mentioned, the AAF went out of business quick, the XFL went bankrupt, obviously coronavirus didn't help that. Why do you think none of these second leagues have gained any traction? Yeah, I actually, it's funny. So the um, the XFL was run, the commissioner was was Oliver Luck, Andrew Luck's dad. Mm-hmm. And he actually emailed me a couple of times before they were starting and saying like he read the USFL book and it really gave him some good ideas and blah, blah, blah. And, I really was pulling for him, you know, like I'm not a Vince McMahon fan. I think he's kind of a slime ball, but I love Oliver Luck. And I thought I had a shot. And um, I think the XFL just honestly ran into the coronavirus. And I just think that was it was it just couldn't survive it. Um, the the NFL now, like when the USFL came along, you were competing against a seasonal entity. The NFL was a fall thing. And that was it. Nowadays, the NFL is a 12 month a year. 360, you know, there's the NFL network, there's the combine, there's the draft, there's free agency. There's all, it sounds stupid, but there's always news of a team switching their uniform colors or 
adding this or doing that. Like mm-hmm. it is nonstop. And I would actually argue that people like talking about the NFL more than they like watching the NFL. Like talking about the NFL is a cottage industry. So the hunger for alternative football, a, a spring league, I just don't think it's there anymore. I don't think people really, I think people are getting their fill. And if anything, I think the NFL is overdosing people on football a little bit. So I think the biggest problem is you're you're providing um, more football to an audience that doesn't want more football. Yeah, I think it would have been interesting to see what happened in a non-corona world if the XFL, because the first week the numbers were incredible, and then it slowly started to kind of die off from there. Um, it's I'll, tough. It's very tough. Yeah. It's very tough to convince people to spend their afternoons watching like Cardale Jones hand mm-hmm. off to a running back from Appalachian State. You know, like that is a tough sell week after week after week. You'll get them at the beginning for the curiosity. It's very hard to keep people. Yeah, I think the beginning of it was fun for us uh, as a sports betting podcast. Be like, oh, football, cool. Like, let's let's uh, sprinkle a little money on some of these guys. But um, curious to hear your take on that sports betting as it becomes more mainstream. Uh, generally, um, if if that's something you've thought about in terms of maybe a future book or just generally how you think that'll change the landscape. So I am the uh, I've only bet on a sporting event one time in my entire life. It was uh, when I was. No, I was in high school and Michael Spinks was fighting Mike Tyson for the heavyweight championship. And the fight, I bet Ari Pollock five bucks that Spinks would beat Tyson. Tyson knocked him out in 91 seconds. So I lost my five bucks. <laughs> um, I think it's really fascinating. I actually think, you know, it's funny. When I was coming up, the idea that you would have teams in Las Vegas was a big no-no. You would never have teams in Las Vegas because of the gambling ties and blah, blah, blah. And, um, the idea that, you know, on ESPN, they would discuss sports betting was a big no-no. We can't have anything to do with it. Um, betting is not my passion in any way, shape, or form. Like, I literally never think of it. But I can appreciate the way it is being approached because I think it's a it's a real thing. It's a real passion for people. It's a big part of sports. And the years and years and decades of pretending it didn't exist was just stupid. It just mm-hmm. didn't make any sense. It's a big part of it. It's a big reason people watch it. So I've never understood not embracing it. So I'm glad they do. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited to see the Raiders in Vegas once everything kind of gets back to normal and they could have fans there, how that works out. Um, and you mentioned uh, the new book year that's coming out in September, the Kobe and Shaq, uh, Phil Jackson, that three-peat uh, going from 96 to 04, talking about all the years they spent together. You mentioned your books typically take a two-year process to write. So did you talk to Kobe for the book and were you finished before he died? And if you weren't, did you have to change anything? How, how did that work? Right. So, all right. So this one, I took about two years to write. I was told very early on, I would not get Kobe. Right. I got Phil Jackson, eight hours in Montana. I got oh, Shaq oh, wow. in Atlanta. I got almost every player from that era. I did not get Kobe. Um, I wrote a ton about Kobe, interviewed a million people about Kobe. People knew Kobe, didn't get Kobe. Um, the book is going through edits it's kind of getting ready for production. And um, I, I'm sitting in a corner bakery in, uh, actually, if you're in Chicago, you have corner bakeries there. I, uh, <laughs> I, I'm sitting in a corner bakery in Irvine, California, and a friend of mine named Amy Bass texts me and she said, it said something like, uh, did you hear about Kobe? And I was like, what? And she's like, I think he died. And it reminded me of being a kid. This is before your time, but when it, back in 86, the space shuttle Challenger exploded. And I remember people were saying, oh, yeah, did you hear the space shuttle exploded? And it was like, wait, that doesn't mean or 9-11 is too big. But that I, that whole idea of that something is happening mm-hmm. and your brain is too slow to catch up to the news. And that's how I felt with Kobe, where I was just like, wait, that doesn't that doesn't make sense. So. Um, I I ended up writing a so the problem is like 96 to 04 Kobe. It's not the best Kobe. No. You know, like, it's just not the best Kobe. It's not, he was kind of a, he could be an asshole. And he, the Eagle Colorado situation with the rape. And there's a, it's not a smooth period for a guy who ultimately became a pretty impressive person. But at that time, he was just a kind of a young buck trying to figure his way through. So I didn't want people to think, having gone through what I told you about the Walter Payton experience, where people are like, how dare you? I didn't want people, I kind of wanted to protect myself a little and also make clear that the Kobe Bryant you're about to read about is just a 96 to 04 unfinished Kobe Bryant. So I wrote a new prologue 
uh, or a note from the author at the beginning of the book, just kind of talking about his death and explaining the context of this versus who he was. Um, it was, I mean, I've never had that happen. I've never had anything close to that happen where you spend two years working on a subject, writing about a subject, and then the subject dies. Um, and I was like everyone, like a lot of people, even though I wasn't the Ingram of a Laker fan, didn't, you know, like I just found it really devastating, like really, truly devastating. And I found the Kobe Bryant who we came to know later on to be really impressive and sort of matured and the kind of version you'd want to become. Um, so uh, yeah, it just, it sucks. Yeah. I mean, Tyler and I are diehard Laker fans, so I didn't even know that book was in the hopper until I was looking at your Amazon. I was like, oh, wow, this this I mean, it is in the hopper. You you, you have you easily have at least two people who will read this book. It might be the only two. I'll take it. I'm going to hold you to that. I I think you're going to have a lot more. I'm a quick follow up question. I was talking to Phil Jackson for eight hours in Montana. I think we got a little bit of a preview on uh, was it the last dance when he was outside. But how, how was Phil? funny we were watching the last dance here which i loved and um i kept saying to my kids i was like oh yeah i was i was there like i was there because mm-hmm. it was phil at his house in montana it was it was great i mean um so basically i didn't know if i'd get phil and Jeannie bus who's the owner of the lakers um is a really wonderful person one of my favorite probably my favorite person in sports wow. and she used to date phil and i emailed mm-hmm. her and i said i'm having trouble getting phil it was one of those emails where you're like you don't ask for help, but you hope the person volunteers. And she goes, let me check. So she said, you can email Phil. Here's his email address. And he said, well, when would you want to talk? Um, and I was like, would you be willing to do it in person if I came out to Montana? And he said, he said, okay. And I flew out to Montana and I met him at a coffee shop. And the first thing I said was, I just really want to thank you for doing this. And he goes, I'm not doing it for you. I'm doing it for Jeannie. And I was like, oh. <laughs> and I thought, all right, maybe I'll get an hour out of this. And then he's like, all right, I was thinking I was going to drive you around this lake. And then uh, let's see how that goes. So I drove around the lake with him. We stopped for lunch. And it was like a – then we went back to his house. Then he's like, you want to grab dinner later? And we went to dinner later. It was basically like if you guys won, like, win an eight-hour day with Phil Jackson yeah. in Montana. Yeah. That's it, was a, it, it was a thrill. It was really – I still like – and it wasn't a thrill. Like, I'm not one of these guys. I don't get – you know sweaty handed anymore being around famous people or it's not it's not about that it's truly not about that it's not about like oh this guy won all these championships i just love spending time with people and being able to ask interesting people questions and seeing things i haven't seen before and he was just great he was a great host um i probably learned more about montana than i did about the lakers i mean he's very into montana and he's very into history and he was just great he was just great he was a gentleman and he was cool and he was funny and self-deprecating and it was just really fun that's awesome i heard jason Hare, the director of the last dance 30 for 30 talking about trying to get into contact with him like you mentioned then i think getting like a third party also as you said to get connected with him and he's kind of maybe a little standoffish at first and then opened up so i'm definitely excited to read that book What's a like what's your dream i guess maybe you talked about the usfl but is there one story you've not written about that you're really excited to do in the future my dream book would be a tupac biography um oh, tupac wow. Shakur. i grew up a hip-hop fan and it's just a huge undertaking and it's kind of an intimidating book to write because of the vastness of that subject but um mm-hmm. that's probably my that's probably my like holy grail is to write it the definitive tupac biography but uh i don't know we'll see it's hard you know it's hard in this business like any business you get known as a sports writer and you get known as a sports author and you come wrong. And this guy who writes sports, I literally had someone say to me, and this actually really infuriated me. Someone said, why would I hire a white sports writer to write a Tupac biography? And I was like, what difference does that make? I freaking love Tupac and I love hip hop and blah, 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 blah. And, um, but it's, it's like anything, like you become a little bit typecast. And I think people, you know, why would we have this sports writer write a Tupac biography? But I'm a passionate reporter and I love Tupac and the music speaks to me and hopefully I'll get a chance. Cool. We'll look out for that. I do want to ask you one more quick question before, before we go here. So you interviewed John Rocker in 1999 for SI and I found the, found the article online and there is what, I think there was a website you quoted in the article a few times, like John Rocker sucks.com. How was <laughs> how, 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 how was that all process with him? Cause isn't Kenny powers, the HBO show, like loosely based off John Rocker. You know, they've never said it is. 
but it's one of those things like you know it is quote unquote exactly like where's my money um <laughs> yeah that was do you guys i mean wait so you guys 99 yeah you guys were alive but you were young like would you, do you even know who john rocker is yeah heard the name and yeah. i watched eastbound and down so <laughs> yeah which is great that really was yeah. i mean i was just a young writer at sports illustrated and um so basically tom verducci who's a really great baseball writer would get all the great assignments and i was kind of the backup so i would get like the crumbs which is fair because verducci was great so there was this great closer for the braves who was kind of getting the reputation of a loudmouth asshole named john rocker and um the magazine said, do you want to, why don't you profile John Rocker? And I spent, the Mets and Braves were playing in the 99 NLCS. And I got as much time as I could with Rocker here and there. But during the playoffs, it's very hard because there's a million media members around. So you don't get that much time. I wrote the story. It never ran because the Braves got swept by the Yankees in the World Series. So too quick. They never ran a profile. And the profile I'd written was a very positive John Rocker story. It was like, because I got I had limited access. So I talked to his parents a lot and. There's what I say, like, John Rocker's a misunderstood. He's really a nice guy, blah, blah, blah. So the story never runs. And um, after the season, my editor says, why don't you go freshen up? Go down to Georgia and hang out with John Rocker and freshen it up. And I, I called his agent. His agent's like, yeah, you should come down. He's great. You're going to love him. So I fly down. I mean, he picked me up on the side of a road, actually, which is weird. And mm-hmm. we're driving. And very early on, he pulls up to a toll booth and a toll booth won't open and he throws money into the, it was one of those things we throw the change in and it won't open and he starts giving the middle finger to the toll booth and the guy behind him is honking and he goes down the window and tells him, fuck you. And then we're driving behind a car that's driving slow and he starts complaining about Asian women and how they can't drive. And the guy driving the car is white and we get to the school for disadvantaged kids and they play a twisted sister song. I want to rock. And he kind of steals the CD when we leave and, he hates everybody and he's just he calls a black teammate a fat monkey and he's just like a vile despicable gross human being like truly a vile despicable gross human being and uh i wrote the story and it kind of blew up and before pre-twitter pre-facebook pre-instagram pre-tiktok all that stuff you know it kind of went viral and suddenly you're watching snl and there's will ferrell spoofing john rocker you know and he was suspended he was fined he was demoted and he became this pariah and, you know, not that long ago, he was selling Speak English T-shirts out of the trunk of his car. Wow. So There you go. John Rocker. John Rocker. What a guy. Uh, oh, but... If you're ever feeling bad about being a Barry Bonds fan, there's always worse. Yeah. <laughs> Thank worse. you. That Thank was a positive you. end to uh, the interview, I think. Yeah, yeah that's perfect. Uh, Jeff, no, this, is, this has been great. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate your time. Definitely excited to check out, was it Three Ring Circus? name of the book awesome um so where can our listeners find you on twitter and uh and follow you just uh at jeff perlman on twitter and i have a website jeffperlman.com that's being revamped and will be up very shortly so that's where i am Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from Rootmetrics second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement.